a very diverse message because they were saying things for varying situations. A lot of Jeremiah is condemnation of their sins, prediction of judgment. Uh, A lot of Jeremiah is very forceful, very strong, because he was speaking in a very wicked era. Uh, those last 40 years of the people of Judah uh, were bad. They got worse. <laughs> you know, the people had idols in their hearts, and after Josiah died, in reality. Uh, so a lot of it's that. But Jeremiah also speaks a message of comfort at, for the time period after the exile. You know, Jeremiah looked forward to how God, after he had punished the people and sent them into Babylonian captivity for 70 years, how he was going to bring them back and bless them again. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 29, for the second time, Jeremiah has said that the captivity would only be for 70 years. In Jeremiah 29.10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon... I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And so he's he's said that after 70 years, he will reverse the judgment and bless them again. It shows you something about God's overall uh, perspective. That God's ultimate desire always was to bless his people, But you can't bless a people that are immersed in sin. So the punishment of the captivity was necessary to bring the people to repentance so that he could bless them. But his ultimate intention was to be able to bless them. Um, Probably one of the uh, most popular verses of the uh, 21st century, often taken out of context, is 29.11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Now that's taken out of context a lot today and applied to almost anybody in any circumstance. But that was God's hope for these people and God's intention was to be able to bless them through sending them into captivity and being able to uh, chasten them, discipline them, and bring them back to him. So there are some pretty good sized sections of Jeremiah where he talks about what God was going to do through the captivity and post-captivity. And these chapters we're going to look at now are very much along that line. These are positive, encouraging chapters. Now one of the challenges that we have when we look at the prophets and we see these prophecies of hope for the future (laughs) is to figure out what future are we talking about. <laughs> and and what you see is somewhat of a blending sometimes, because there are ways in which some of these passages have application when Persia conquered Babylon and sent the conquered peoples back home. And so the Israelites were able to come back to Jerusalem. They were able to rebuild the temple. Over a period of time, they were able, able even to rebuild the walls and reestablish their worship and so forth. And so you see some things that remind you of that. But when they returned from captivity and rebuilt Jerusalem, really, that was just kind of a, a, a foreshadowing of the greater blessings God was planning for them in Christ. And so I think these passages mostly look at the coming of Christ and at the spiritual blessings, which kind of a with kind of a glance at the foreshadowing uh, blessing of the return from captivity. Any questions or comments before we plunge into thirty? Okay, would somebody read then chapter thirty, verses one through eleven? word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land, and I will give to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. That I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see, if a male can give birth, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it. 
and it is time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break the yoke from off, his, off their neck, and will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be quiet and at ease, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you, for I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly, and will, will by no means leave you unpunished. Okay. okay, so God says, I want you to write all these words in a book. Now, what would be the reason for wanting Jeremiah to write these words down in a book? So you can remember them? So you can remember them. So what does that tell you about this message? It's for the future. Exactly. It needs to be preserved for a long time because it's really referring to the future. This is not Jeremiah telling his contemporaries what's going to happen week after next. These are things that are applicable later on, so write them down in a book, because the days are coming, he says in verse 3, when he's going to reverse what he had done. Now, there's a lot of things in these blessing passages that specifically reverse the judgment passages earlier in the book. But he's going to restore the fortunes. He's going to bring them back. They're going to possess the land again. God had predicted he was going to kick them off the land. He was going to send them into exile. But the time's coming when he's going to bring them back. You can see the value for the godly remnant of these reassuring, comforting passages saying, in the long run, God is going to bless his people again. In the short run, it's not a good good thing. You know, because he heard the sound of terror and dread, and there is no peace. Uh, and, and before the grace of salvation can be experienced, Israel is going to have to uh, endure distress and pain that he compares to what? Yeah, and childbirth is not a pleasant experience. At least that's what all the women I've known who've given birth <laughs> tell me. I tell, uh, tell them, no, it's not that bad, but they don't agree with that. <laughs> and, and the Bible uses childbirth as kind of the prime example of something very painful and distressing, extreme anguish. And so that's what they're going to go through. And uh, he actually uh, uses kind of an interesting uh, approach to this. He says in verse 6, Ask now and see if a male can give birth. That doesn't usually happen, does it? And he said, Well, then why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Why have all faces turned pale? It looks like the men are going through labor pains. They're so distressed and anguished. You know, that's a way of uh, <coughs> really showing you what terrible distress was coming upon this people in the short term. So he's not, when he says the time's coming that I'm going to bless these people again, he's not saying he's not going to punish them first. He is punishing them first and they're going through the labor pains and it's not fun. But it's the blessing that comes after the discipline. He says there's no, no day like this. It's the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. He's going to go through the distress, and then there's going to come the salvation. So he's clear about the fact that, that when he speaks of the, these comforting, reassuring words, he's not trying to go back on the judgments that he has said were coming in the short ground. He says, but in that day... In verse 8, I'll break his yoke from off their necks and tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. You know, now, remember two chapters ago, it's been a month for us, but two, two chapters ago, do you remember the false prophet Hananiah? Remember what he said? The yoke would be broken. Yeah, he said, 
the yoke is going to be broken off of the, off of the captives. Now, remember in Hananiah's context that Babylon took Judah into captivity in three waves, two minor waves, and then the whole nation. Well, Hananiah spoke between the way the two waves and and the final judgment and he says in two years God's going to break the yoke of the those who've already been taken into captivity and they're going to come back well it sounds like Jeremiah is preaching a similar message doesn't it he says that God's going to break his yoke from off their necks what's the difference between Jeremiah's message and Hananiah's message Yes. Hananiah said in two years, Jeremiah says in 70. Hananiah is saying he's just going to do it with no repentance. Jeremiah says the distress is going to lead him to repentance, and after 70 years, God's going to bring him back. So there's some ways in which false teaching and truth sound similar sometimes. That's a bit deceptive for us. But you listen carefully, and it's not the same message, and it certainly wasn't here. And so, is God going to leave his people when he blesses them again, totally free and independent without any master? What does he say? He's going to break the yoke from off their neck, so are they going to be totally free? They'll serve God. They'll serve God. You know, when we are never totally free, we we may serve sin, we may serve God, we may serve Babylon, or we may serve David, their king. It's going to be a change of masters, but much better service to God than service to sin or to Babylon. Now, when he says David, their king, whom I will raise up for them, uh, when was David the king? king in relationship to uh, Jeremiah's time frame. He's already been. Yeah, and has been for a few centuries now. So that seems strange that he would say uh, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Is God going to reincarnate David? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How? David, uh, Jesus is referred to as that. Exactly. You know, when the prophets speak of the future, they often describe the future in terms of the past that the people can relate to. The David that was going to be king was the descendant of David who was going to be a great ruler like David. And so they call him David. He really meant Jesus. But there's several prophets that will speak of that. Hosea, Ezekiel a couple of times, Jeremiah here and so forth. They speak of Jesus and they call him David because he is the greater David who would reign over his people. Do you remember any other times in the Old Testament that a New Testament uh, figure was called by the name of somebody who'd already uh, uh, left the earth uh, in the in the Old Testament. <laughs> John the Baptist and Elijah. Yeah, John the Baptist was called Elijah because he was like another Elijah. I don't remember any others. You remember any others? Plenty of other times the future is described in terms of the past, but those are the only two names I can remember. Yeah. Thank you for that commentary. <laughs> Um, and so he says, fear not, O Jacob, because I'm going to save you, I'm going to bring you back, and it's going to be a calm, encouraging time, you don't have any reason to panic, and I'm with you to save you, verse 11, and look at this, in verse 11, I will destroy completely all the nations where I've scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. You know, I'm going to chasten you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to give you good whipping. But I'm not going to totally destroy you. I'm going to destroy totally the nation that's led you into captivity. Now, now, now who would have guessed that it was Babylon that would end up being totally destroyed and not Judah? If you'd been a historian of that era, I bet you'd have never predicted that one. 
But God's purpose in sending Judah into captivity in Babylon was just to chasten, to discipline Judah, and to be able to refine them and restore them. And, and, and this is God's word. God declares this, so it's going to be this way. God was going to bless his people again. Comments and thoughts on all that? Well, the, uh, these, you know, the reference to David obviously is not in the same time frame as the, as the rest of this passage. Um, why would you say that? Well, because he said in 70 years, and in that day you'll return, and then you'll serve David the king. Yes. So what does that tell you? He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> no. I think that tells you that this is not primarily thinking of the return from captivity, that the return is more or less just a almost a... Uh, a sign that God's going to fulfill this in the greater and fuller way. This is mostly talking about their returning from the captivity of sin and their being blessed in Christ. But when he brought them back from Babylon, that was kind of like a down payment on that. That was kind of like a, a way of seeing that in miniature that foreshadowed the greater return. And it says they'll be quiet in verse 10, and they're not quiet and at peace um, when they come back. That's right. So, it, it, this is so typical of the prophets, that there is a fulfillment in the near ground, but the near ground fulfillment is... you got a place here on the couch if you want it, sir. You can sit there. You can both, you can both sit there. Honey. <laughs> So you've got a near ground fulfillment in a lot of these passages that is, you know, it, it, it's like, um, you know, just sort of a sketchy fulfillment. It, 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 it's, it's the same shape, it, it's similar, it, it, it's, it kind of gives you confidence when you see that preliminary fulfillment that the ultimate was is coming. But but it's very common in these prophets that while you can see the near ground fulfillment, there are some pieces in them that really, if you press the language, it's only true of the ultimate fulfillment. David, their king's a perfect example. I mean, they didn't even have a king when they came back from captivity. I mean, how did they have David as their king? I mean, I don't think Zerubbabel should be seen as a David or whoever else may have kind of been a governor over them after that. So I think a lot of times the sketchy near-ground fulfillment, once you really look at the passage and press the language, you're like, some of this doesn't really fit that. If you really press this, this is really looking to the future. And so that we need to see that a lot of times in the prophets. You've got that almost a dual fulfillment but the mainer one is the one in Christ. Good comment. Thoughts and comments further on this passage? Friend. The, the thing about the labor just reminds me of John 16, 21. It says, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers anguish for her joy that a human being has been born in the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice, and your joy will, no one will take from you. It is amazing how many times that figure is used. It's a great illustration of the pain that leads to joy. Yeah. You know, what's more painful than childbirth and what's more joyful than having the child? So that's a great illustration of that, that uh, half the population understands well. <laughs> <laughs> Other thoughts and comments? Kevin? Verse 11 says that... Um, for I will completely destroy all the nations. And then it continues to say, but oh, I will not destroy you completely. Oh, what does that mean? Um, he, I will com destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. Oh, okay. The contrast between he will destroy Babylon completely, but not God's people. Sorry, I saw yeah. that. As well. Yeah, I understand. That's cool. So what is that referring to in the longer term? 
Well, I think ultimately God destroys all the people who are against his people and he blesses his people. That's That, I think, is true. Babylon would be a short-term fulfillment of that, but really everything that's against God ultimately goes down the tubes and only God's people are spared, yeah. So many of those things are like that. Is is that a surprise? I mean, should we be shocked that there's some kind of a sketchy fulfillment and then there's an ultimate fulfillment that you can almost use the same terms for? No, because God's a consistent God. So he acts in similar patterns. Isn't that true? I mean, you see God, you know, is is it a new thing in the final judgment that God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous? Well, he's been doing that over and over again in less dramatic ways throughout history. God is God always acts on the same principles. So there's a lot of patterns you see in the Bible. And that really helps you understand God. It's one of the reasons you study the Old Testament. And you say, well, the Old Testament doesn't apply to us. Well, but God's the same kind of a God. You can learn a lot about God that you see him in, you know, one place in the Old Testament. Well, he's doing the same kind of thing today. Other thoughts? So, is it, so do these passages switch? I mean, obviously, we talk about how it refers to the current and to the future. <clears throat> is it both? Is it? I mean, there's certain things in here. The wording, like concerning Israel and Judah. Now, is that saying the actual ones that are in captivity, or is that saying Israel and Judah? It, in other words, could this entire passage be the messianic, the future, and none of it current? Well, I think yes and no. I think the entire passage is the future. But I think you would say some of it is also current in the sense that it's, it, it, it is fulfilled in a sketchy way in the return from captivity that kind of, uh, you know, shows you the nature of God and shows you him kind of giving the down payment. But I think the Israel and Judah, if you look over at chapter 31 and verse 31, we know this passage. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, when we read that, do we think that's only fulfilled in the near term? Well, really, it's hard to see much of any kind of a fulfillment in the near term. That new covenant is really talking about what they have in Christ, but he speaks of with Israel and Judah. So what do you learn from that? Well, I think God uses Israel and Judah in the sense of the faithful remnant of the Jews. You've got a passage in 31.7, in the end of it. O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. So I think when he uses Israel and Judah, he means the faithful remnant. And we understand that when you look at the whole picture of the prophets, God was going to bless the remnant of his people, the faithful Israel and Judah, but but all the other faithful of the nations were going to come in and join them to where the Israel of God is multinational. It's not just the remnant of Israel and Judah, but the faithful of other nations are brought in as well. So ultimately, Israel and Judah sort of changes definition. It's, it's not just ethnic descendants of Abraham, it's faith descendants of Abraham. So I suspect almost all of this passage, maybe all of it, is applicable in Christ, but some parts of it are in a minor way or in a shadow way applicable in Jesus. You know, I've been working on that more and more, just thinking about some different passages. We've seen that a lot. I'll throw out a couple of things. Some of you will get this, and some of you may have to jot down notes and study it. But there's a lot of the passages where David speaks, say, in the Psalms, where David in one sense speaks of his own experience, but in a richer and fuller sense, God was speaking through David of the experiences of Jesus. For example, Psalm 16, where it's, it's the psalm of a righteous man like David. He was talking about himself. You won't leave my soul to see corruption. You won't leave my body in the grave. Well, I think David meant that about himself. And that God was going to raise him up. That God wasn't going to let death be the end. And so David had hope. 
But Peter uses that in Acts 2, and Paul uses in Acts 13 and said, hey, that wasn't really true of David, because his flesh decayed. And, and that really, if, if you take that, that wording, and you really, like, take it at what it's really saying, it could only be true of Jesus. I think David meant it to be true of himself. I think it is in a, in a sketchy way. But Peter and Paul say, it's not ultimately true of David. It's ultimately true only of Jesus. I think David spoke better than he knew sometimes. God was inspiring him. And so I think these words that he meant for himself, you really look at him and you start pushing them and, and saying, well, what are they really saying? You analyze them. That's really Jesus. I would say that. I, I really thought about this recently, and there's a lot of controversy about this passage. But when David in Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I think David wrote that in Psalm 22 about himself. That he felt in the circumstance like God had abandoned him, even though he'd always blessed him in the past. God had abandoned him, although he'd helped all the other faithful people. That's kind of what he says. And look at poor me, you know. Uh, and so I think David... It wasn't like he really had been abandoned by God, but it sure did seem like it and feel like it. But he says, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says that on the cross, and I think Jesus ultimately is the only real fulfillment of those exact words because Jesus was abandoned on the cross in the sense that he was separated from God, bearing the punishment for our sin. So I think something that was true in, in general in David, when you really look at it, God inspired him to say something that would be true ultimately only of Jesus. I think that's true all over the place in the prophets. I think that the genius of this, wow, David could write something, Jeremiah could write something, that Jeremiah in himself may have been thinking of the return. But God really caused it to be written in such a way but there are some aspects of this. David, their king, that's really the, the, the fulfillment in Christ. And then you start looking at it, and really a lot of it has... The sketchy fulfillment isn't that strong. It's much stronger in the fulfillment in Christ. Now, you can think about all that, and there may be some weaknesses that, that, to that view. But, but the more I see that, the more I think that's a good way to think about it. Other thoughts? Did that start with verse 30? Does that change the... Chapter 30, does that start the... I mean, obviously it says, you know, the word which came to Jeremiah. In other words, did it go from the the current talking to the people? It was more the prophecies and stuff. I think there is a section break before chapter 30. And so that chapter 30, especially 30 to 33 was an exception a little bit. But 30 to 33 is a lot more future. And before 30 was a lot more present. But it's not absolute. There are some things before 30 that look forward to the future and the return of the blessings in Christ. But, but I do think, yeah, this is a really concentrated section of hope and assurance and ultimate salvation for the people. Other questions or thoughts? Good comments. All right, uh, 12 to 17. For thus says the Lord, Your wound is incurable, incurable and, your, and your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy with the punishment of a cruel one. Because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous, why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable. Because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you will be devoured, and all who 
and all your adversaries, every one of them, will go will go into captivity. And those who plunder you will be plundered, and all, and all who prey upon you will be will give for prey. For I will restore you to your to health, and I and I will help heal heal you for your wounds, declares the Lord, because you have called out before they have called you an outcast, saying, It is Zion. No one cares for her. Alright, so the Lord says, You guys are in terrible shape. Your wounds incurable, your injuries serious, and you don't have any help. You don't have any healing, you don't have any legal support, you don't have any recovery, there's no friends for you, your lovers have forgotten you, you know, it's just terrible, your iniquity's so bad, your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain's incurable. You're just so so uh, sinful, so wicked. I mean, Judah is caught in this terrible disease that they brought on themselves. You know, I mean, gangrene set in, you know... And it's spread all over the body, and there's no hope. You know, it's just totally, there's no cure. You know, the cancer's everywhere. You know, it's in the lymph nodes. It's spread all over the vital organs. And, you know, no doctor can deal with it. Surgery's not an option. You know, chemo won't work, you know, and so forth. I mean, that's kind of the idea. It's, it's hopeless. It's it's terrible, you know, you, you can't be helped. You haven't got anybody to help you anyway, and if you did, they couldn't deal with it because you're just too wicked, it's too awful. It is an incurable wound, incurable pain. It's hopeless. There is no healing, there is no recovery, there is no hope. And so he says in verse 16, Therefore... All who devour you will be devoured. And all of your adversaries, every one of them, will go into captivity. And those who plunder you will be for plunder. All who prey upon you, I will give for prey. That doesn't seem like a very logical therefore, do you think? (laughs) You know, you are so bad, it's so incurable, it's so hopeless, therefore, I'm going to punish all your enemies. (laughs) That doesn't follow. You know, there are some of the therefores in the prophets that are like, what? You know, I would expect, therefore, you are going to be annihilated and never be thought about again. You know, therefore, I'm going to totally wipe you out, and that'll be the end. Um, you know, Hosea 2 is a great example of a therefore like that. And Hosea 2 is interesting because he's had some therefores in the passage. He's talking about how Israel's unfaithful like an unfaithful wife, and she is just horrible. Man, she is the most unfaithful, flirtatious, wicked woman you could get. Married to God, and God's fed up with her. He's about to divorce her. And and he says in Hosea 2.6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. He says in verse 9, Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax, etc. And then, you know, in, in verse 13, I'll punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifice to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, verse 14, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her and bless her. It's like, what? These therefores, well, therefore I'm going to punish her, therefore I'm going to, and all of a sudden, therefore I'm going to woo her, woo her and win her back and bless her all over again. It's like, wow, God has some therefores in the prophets that you would just never expect. It's like, well, I would therefore destroy them, and God is therefore, you know, uh, going to to bless them again. A couple more, Isaiah 30, 18, uh, Jeremiah 16, 14. So, she's hopeless, You know, there's nothing you can do. It's incurable. Therefore, I'm going to destroy your enemies. And then look at verse 17. For I will restore you to health. 
I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. Well, <laughs> what do you see in that? They just said it was incurable, that he would, no one could heal them. And now it's reversing that process. What do you see in that? He's giving the example that he's the only one who can. Yeah. God is the God who can heal the incurable wound. And he will with his people. God takes the hopeless situation that there's nothing that can be done about it. And he intervenes. And he is going to ultimately, through Christ, bring grace on people who are absolutely hopeless. And there's nothing that could be done about it. That is an amazing thing. Now you remember, the false prophets offered healing, and peace, and salvation. But it was counterfeit. It was bogus. But God, through his true prophets, ultimately offered healing and restoration to people who absolutely didn't deserve it. We were eaten up with sin so bad, there was nothing. There was no one. There was no medicine. There was no surgery. There was no... It was hopeless. Totally and utterly hopeless. How can people who've done so many wicked things as we have ever have hope of salvation? But we do through the Lord. Isn't that amazing? How could Israel, taken into captivity, ever think they were coming back out as much things as they'd done wrong? So their return under Cyrus, and in a greater and fuller way, our salvation in Christ, is just the miracle of miracles. You know, and what happens to the enemies? <laughs> because they have called you as outcasts, saying, it is Zion, no one cares for her. Because they have have really said, you know, she's hopeless. God was going to restore their fortunes and punish the enemies. That's just, I mean, God says things so dramatically sometimes that it really makes you stop and think. I, I would compare a passage like the end of Romans 5 where sin abounded, grace superabounded. It's amazing. The worst man, worst man is, the more the grace of God it's <coughs> unbelievable. Now, you know one of the things that we should never do is downplay how wicked we are or how bad mankind has been. Because if the sin wasn't really so bad, then the forgiveness is not really so good. When we see how utterly sinful we are and God is merciful. You know, what if the prodigal son had only, you know... Just, yeah, he'd, he'd uh, done a couple of minor things wrong, but it hadn't been too bad. Then would the fact that the father uh, forgave him and took him back seem that uh, amazing? It's when you see how horrible he was that the father's reacceptance is so amazing. Comments and thoughts? So... He's saying, I punished you, I, God, punished you. And then these other people kind of like piled on and spoke ill of you, and therefore I'm healing you, or am I... Was, was the, I guess, was the, the healing was always in the plan... Yes, I think the healing was always in the plan. God used the nations. Now, they did sometimes go beyond what he uh, authorized them to, but he used the nations. I think that, therefore, it's almost like you were in such horrible shape. You were so hopeless. Therefore, I intervened and helped you. But it's, it's, it's an illogical, therefore, from our perspective. I mean, God's grace defies rational thinking. What would you do if somebody was so defiant and rebellious and horrible as we were? We'd just wipe them out. There is nothing logical in one sense about the grace of God. That, therefore, is just incredible. It is God's choice to love us. I mean, you think about this. Would you give up your son to redeem people as wicked as we are? I mean, who would ever do that? 
I'd have a hard time giving up my son to redeem somebody who was really virtuous and good. But to give him up for people who were spitting in the face of God is amazing. I, I think we can often see, I say this often, but I think it's so true. The thing that is hard to understand about God is not his wrath. I think God's wrath is perfectly understandable. Why wouldn't he be wrathful? The thing that's hard to understand about God is his grace and his love. I don't understand why he has that. I understand why he's wrathful. <laughs> and I think sometimes we have a harder time believing in his grace and love. Because it doesn't fit our logic. I don't think it really is exactly logical. It's God's choice. Other thoughts? Pretty cool passages. Alright, 18 to 24. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob, and have compassion on his dwelling places, and the city shall be rebuilt on its ruin, and the palace shall stand on its rightful place. From them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of those who celebrate, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be diminished. I will also honor them, and they shall not be insignificant. Their children also shall be as formerly, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all their oppressors. Their leader shall be one of them, and their ruler shall come forth from their midst, and I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days you will understand this. Alright, now look at this. Uh, in verse 18, I'll restore the fortunes, I'll have compassion, city rebuilt, palace will stand, there'll be the celebration voices. Now you, you contrast that with a lot of verses really in, in uh, Jeremiah, but most recently in 25.10 I will take away from them, uh, take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone, the light of the lamp. I'm going to put him to silence. It's just going to be absolute darkness. And then all of a sudden here, there's going to be the voice of celebration. They're, they're going to, I'm going to multiply them and honor them and bless them and punish their oppressors. What? The, so the noise of life and joy replaces the silence of the judgment against them. And how does this happen? Well, their leader. Look at verse 21. And I want you to see the characteristics of this leader and ruler. First of all, he's one of them. He's a native. Uh, he comes forth from their midst. So God's going to have this leader that, that's going to be one of their own people. And, and what's he going to do? Well, he says, I will bring him near and he shall approach me. Now, in Israel, what was, who were the class of people that could come near and approach God? Priests. The priests. But this one, in verse 21, as a leader and a ruler, is fulfilling what function? Who was the one who was a leader and a ruler in Israel's later history? Judah, the tribe of Judah. And uh, individually? Jesus. The king, yeah. So you've got a king that's acting as a priest. Well, that was tried and it failed in Judah. You remember the king in the divided kingdom who tried to act like a priest? Leprosy. He did. Remember what his name was? Nope. Isaiah. Yeah, he came into the temple to burn incense. Priest told him not to. But I guess he thought as king, he could be priest too. 
And while he was in trying to burn the incense, leprosy broke out on his forehead and spread to his whole body, and he rushed out of the temple and was quarantined in his house for the rest of his life. God did not exactly approve of a king who thought he could be priest. And in fact, kings were never priests in Judah. And among other reasons, why not? The wrong tribe. tribe. Kings were from the tribe of Judah and priests from the tribe of and never the twain shall meet. But here, God's going to take a king, a leader ruler from their midst and bring him near. He'll approach me for who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. But that's what's going to happen. He's going to have a king who's got this ability to come into the presence of God. Now, really, in the whole Old Testament, there was only one king that was also priest. And who was that? Melchizedek. Melchizedek pre-law, pre-Moses, era of Abraham, he was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, and we read about him historically in a whopping three verses in Genesis 14. But Psalm 110 picked up on that and says that the ruler would be priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which then Hebrews picks up on and makes a lot of uh, big deal about in applying to Jesus. Jesus was the king priest. There are a couple of other foreshadowings of that in the Old Testament. In the return from captivity period, Joshua was the high priest, but in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, he was crowned with a kingly crown, and God predicted that God was going to have a priest who would be king, and there would be a union between those two functions. And actually, the Old Testament named Joshua, in Greek, in the New Testament, is what? Jesus. So Joshua actually had Jesus' name, and he prefigures a king who would be priest. And I would say there is at least a couple of other foreshadowings of a king-priest in the Old Testament. There is one ruler that was priest and prophet, in fact, two, when I stop and think about it, who were the rulers who were also priest in some sense and prophet in the Old Testament? Samuel is a good one, because Samuel was, he wasn't a king, they didn't call him a king, but he was the leader. He wasn't a normal priest. Uh, well, yeah, he was. I'm, I'm getting two people confused. He was He was a judge, so he was king. He was a priest. He was from a priestly family. And he was a prophet because he spoke the word of God. What was the other ruler, part-time priest, and prophet in the Old Testament? Talking about Moses. Moses. He was the leader. He was a priest in connection with what? He established the priesthood. He was a priest for the priests. When they were inaugurating the priest and consecrating the priest, he acted as the priest to priestize Aaron and his son. So he was the priest priest. He was the priest before the priest. Yeah, that, he was the pre-priest. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Uh, so he was... Leader, he was priest, and he was a preeminent prophet, and actually says in Deuteronomy 18, God will raise up a prophet like me, which is quoted in Acts 3 and Acts 7 as applied to Jesus. So there were a couple of sort of foreshadowings, maybe there's others, those are the ones I can think of. But but this is another one of those Old Testament passages that you see what God was up to. (laughs) He was going to bring this ruler from them who was going to be able to approach him. There was going to be this king priest. He's talking about Jesus. And look, in verse 22, the ideal God had always had for his people was going to be fulfilled. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. That was the goal of God's relationship from the time of Exodus 6-7, if not before, and it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. 
So that's a really cool passage right there, I think. Uh, we'll deal with 23 and 24 in a minute, but you have questions and comments through this here in verse 22. What was okay. the reference for Isaiah? Isaiah would be Second Chronicles 26. Other thoughts? Now he says in 23, he doesn't want this to leave them with some kind of false security. I mean, because remember, Jeremiah's, I think at this point, probably predicting this pre-captivity. I mean, I don't doubt that the first couple waves may have gone into captivity already, but this is pre-the ultimate captivity. So, the tempest of the Lord, wrath has gone forth. You know, sweeping tempest is going to burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger will not turn back until he's done it. In other words, don't you think by predicting this uh, salvation later that suddenly God's uh, withdrawing the judgment in the near future? No, he's not doing that. You know, the judgment's got to come upon the wicked so he can ultimately save them by disciplining them and bringing them repentance. Uh, he says, so it won't turn back until he's performed, until he's accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days you will understand this. I love that end of chapter 30. In the latter days you will understand this. You know, you can't really expect to totally understand Old Testament prophecies until you see them in the light of their New Testament fulfillment. When you see them in the light of that, it's like, Aha! Now I see that. Like the light bulb comes on. But I don't think there's any way to totally understand some of this until you see the fulfillment in Christ. You get the idea. I mean, it communicated to them hope and, and salvation and blessing for the future, but only in Christ does it really flesh out and you could really see exactly what he's talking about. So there's nothing like the fulfillment to really clarify a prophecy. Thoughts and comments? At what point has he performed the intent of our heart that he stops saying? Well, I think he's saying until he's taken into captivity and whipped him. So until he does that, he's not, you know, this, this salvation assurance stuff doesn't come until after he's, you know, executed his wrath. Yes. I think it's neat how God never leaves his people without hope. Like, no matter what, he always gives them, okay, yeah, this may be hard right now, but in the future, this is going to happen. So, don't worry. I agree. Yes. Verse 24 reminds me of a passage that I couldn't find about his word going forth and not coming back until it's fulfilled. You know? Yeah, isn't that Isaiah 55? Yeah. No clue. I couldn't find it. <laughs> Isaiah 55, 11. 10 and 11. But yeah, that's right. It always it always accomplishes its purpose. So a lot of good passages in the prophets, but you get it you know, in the middle of a long book like Jeremiah. It tend, some of these tend to get overlooked sometimes. So. Alright, chapter 31. Uh, verses 1 to 6. 